So let's bring into our awareness how interrelated we are with other living beings and how the very fact that we're able to continue to be alive depends on their kindness. And so as a way to repay them, we're going to transform our own minds so that we'll have more and more wisdom, compassion, and skill to be able to be of great benefit to them, not only in this life, but in future lives. And not only then, but to really lead them to the ultimate joy and fulfillment of Buddhahood. And so one step in this process is the discussions that we'll be having today and in the rest of the course. So make your motivation in tune with repaying the kindness that we've received in our in this life and in previous lives and the kindness that we'll continue to receive from others. start out talking a little bit about was living in a monastic environment because um, many of you have never lived in a monastic environment before and uh, we do things differently and we do things differently for specific reasons in other words um, the lifestyle we live isn't just something invented uh, on whim, you know, and uh, either the precepts we keep or just the ways we do things in the Abbey aren't just like, well, you know, what the heck, do it this way. But, uh, you know, things are done for particular reasons. And so uh, the ultimate reason is that we're all trying to become fully enlightened. We're trying to maximize our greatest spiritual potential for the benefit of all living beings. So that is our ultimate goal, person, purpose, reason for everything we do. To maximize that ultimate spiritual potential, there's some, some things we have to do along the path. One of them is to reduce... Uh, are afflictive emotions and actually to completely eliminate them. So afflictive emotions such as such as clinging attachment, greed, the mind that says I want, I want. Uh, another one is anger, resentment, the mind that says I don't like, get it away from me. 
And then the mind or the mental factor that all these are based upon, which is ignorance, which completely uh, misapprehends everything that we perceive. Okay, so seeing these three, ignorance, clinging attachment, and anger, they're often called the three poisonous attitudes or the three poisons, and seeing them as responsible for the misery we experience in our life, then we want to be free of them. So they're responsible for our misery, not just in the sense that uh, when we're angry, we're unhappy and things like that. That's true, yeah. But they're really responsible for our misery in the, in the sense that when they occupy our mind, we have no freedom. And we're completely driven by these afflictive emotions to do whatever action they want us to do. So attachment wants us to manipulate others to get what we want. Resentment wants us to criticize and talk behind other people's back. Arrogance wants us to lord our own knowledge, our stature, good qualities over others. Jealousy wants us to um, backbite, put others down, destroy their happiness. Okay, so these afflictive emotions compel us to do actions. That's what karma is. And then these actions bring us misery immediately, but also in terms of uh, future lives. They make they account and influence what we're born as, what we experience in our life, uh, our what kind of habits and tendencies we have in our life, what kind of environment we live in. Okay? So seeing these uh, afflictive emotions as the real enemy that uh, we have to do something about in order to be happy, then, you know, and since we're aiming for full enlightenment, then we have to do something with those. One of our purposes is to reduce and and eventually eliminate the afflictive emotions. Yeah. So we have to really start counteracting our attachment, our very gross attachment. There's no way to counteract subtle attachment unless we do something with the gross attachment. We have to do something with our anger. And again, start off with our gross anger and resentment and then work to subtler and subtler levels. And same thing with ignorance. Okay. Now, keeping good ethical conduct is one method that helps us to tame our mind. And while the monastic vows concern specifically actions of uh, speech and body, in order to regulate and subdue negative actions that are verbal and physical, we have to look at the mind that motivates us to do those actions. Okay. So why ethical conduct and the, the monastic precepts and the five lay precepts have to do with outward manifestations. We have to work with the inward attitudes that propel those. And so that begins the process of taming and subduing the mind. On the basis of, of good ethical conduct, it becomes much easier to meditate because we don't have so much guilt, 
our mind isn't so restless, uh, we aren't so distracted, so concentration becomes easier. With a concentrated mind, it becomes easier to develop wisdom, to understand what the nature of reality is. And it's that wisdom that actually is what cuts the ignorance altogether. Okay? So, what I'm talking about here is the Four Noble Truths and the Three Higher Trainings, if you haven't picked up on it yet. Okay, so really understanding what uh, our difficulty is, the various uh, difficult experiences we experience in cyclic existence, the lack of freedom we have, how the root source of that lies in our own mind, specifically with ignorance that, that, um, lie, that acts as the ground for other disturbing emotions and attitudes such as wrong views or attachment, anger, competitiveness, jealousy, conceit, things like that, and how those afflictive emotions then cause us to do actions you know, and, and act in unethical ways that are harmful to others as well as to ourselves, and then how those actions or karma brings results, painful results, And even if we do create virtuous karma, still because it's created under the influence of ignorance, we still keep getting born in cyclic existence again and again and again. Okay? So, um, this is the kind of background of what what we're doing. And included in it also is an awareness that we're not just trying to liberate ourselves, but that all of us are in the same boat. And so developing uh, love and compassion for each other and reducing our own self-centeredness, cultivating the attitude that cherishes others and then wants to actualize our fullest spiritual potential. In other words, to become a Buddha for the benefit of all living beings. So that includes ourselves as well as all others. So that's the background of what we're trying to do. Okay? So if that's where you're going and why you're going there, then how do you live your daily life to get there? Because it's one thing to have these ideas and, you know, this grand thing of, okay, I'm going to eliminate my attachment, you know, and and things like that. But how do you do that on a day-to-day basis? You know, getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth and encountering people and all the things you have to do. So that's where the precepts, the monastic precepts come in because they help us structure our life so that we can accomplish those goals. And not only the monastic precepts that were set up by the Buddha, but also the guidelines for the individual monastery that we stay in are set up to regulate our daily life so that we can all go in the direction that is our deepest heartfelt spiritual wish. Okay? So that's why I said that, you know, the different things that we do, it's, it's not just out of whim, but it's uh, for particular purposes. Okay? So, um, so when you live together in a monastery, okay, 
What's very clear from the get-go is you are living together. Right? Now, um, we are individualistic beings in the West, uh, particularly Americans, but I think most people are um, individualistic. And um, our our basic thing is we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Right? Or put in a simpler way, I want what I want when I want it. That's our mantra. So, in our heart, we want to become fully enlightened Buddhists, full of love and compassion, tolerance, acceptance, and joy towards every sentient being. And the basic reality is, I want what I want when I want it, and the world owes it to me. So those two things don't match, do they? You know? Hello? They don't match. (laughs) They don't match this self-centered mind that is thinking about what I want and what I feel like and what I'm in the mood to do and what I think should be done. You know, that mind is not the mind that is full of tolerance and patience and kindness and wisdom towards all living beings. It's not the mind that wants to help other living beings out of cyclic existence. It's the mind that wants my happiness as soon as possible, at all costs. Okay. So we have to do something with that mind. When you live in community, that mind is the big thing you're dealing with night and day. Okay? Yeah. Is that mind that says, but I want, or I think it should be done this way. And we find that we have so many opinions, so many ideas, full of biases and um, uh, preferences that aren't based on wisdom, but are based on attachment, you know, we find that we're intolerant. Uh, so many things come up when we encounter living with a group of people. Okay. Um, probably most pe- people have fallen in love at one time or another, and you live with one person that you love, and that's already hard enough, isn't it? Yeah? Um, as attested to the fact that we're not living in that relationship right now. Because <laughs> we had it, and it didn't work. Um, so with one person already, it's very difficult. When you live in a monastery, you are married to everybody, and you don't have the pleasure of having sex with them either. And you don't have the pleasure of them coming and putting their arms around you and telling you that you're the most wonderful person in the world and they love you to bits and they can't live without you. That doesn't happen in the monastery. Okay? So here you are without the joys of the marriage or the intimate romantic relationship and with all the problems of of it but times however many people you're living with. Mm-hmm. So, you're going to grow a lot. 
Yeah. It, it, it really, you know, puts us up uh, against ourselves. Um, of course, there's much joy in it because it gives you the opportunity to really get to know people and support people and be very close to people, but without any of this romantic, gooey, ushigushi attachment kind of junk. Okay? So, uh, you know, the, the life at the monastery is, is, you know, really directed towards helping us overcome all this self-centeredness and the attachment and the, you know, manifold opinions that we have about everything. We often think, oh, I don't have so many opinions. You know, when you're in school and they say, what's your opinion on this? Oh, I don't know. But then we look and and how, how our mind looks at other people. Oh, we have lots of opinions. Yeah. Why does that one comb their hair that way? Why do they walk this way? Why do they do this? You know, who they think they are. We have lots of opinions about other people. So the whole structure of a monastery is helping us to see this. Yeah, that we may see that, that we have these wonderful and truly heartfelt spiritual aspirations. Yeah. And we have the reality of the raw material that we are. And of course, our mind likes to think that we have no faults, or if we have faults, they're actually very little, because most of the friction that happens in monastic life or in living with other living beings in general is their fault. That's the way most of us view it, right? Yeah? When you have problems and conflicts, is it your fault? No, it's their fault. It's their fault. They don't understand me. They don't respect me. They don't appreciate me. Why do I have so many problems? Well, my parents do this, or they don't do that, or my, you know, spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, they do this, they, you know, I want them to do that. The government doesn't do what we want them to do. Nobody does what we want them to do. And that's, and that's the way our ordinary mind sees the source of all of our problems. And uh, that kind of view... I mean, but that's kind of ordinary view in the world, and that's what is commonly accepted in society. But when you're living in a monastery, that's not the view we have. Yeah. Because, like I was just explaining, when we're caught in cyclic existence, we see that the, that the root of our being trapped is not what other people do, do to us. It's our own ignorance, anger, attachment, conceit, competitiveness, jealousy laziness, and so on. Okay? So, living in community, you know, challenges us to completely alter our usual way of viewing social uh, or interactions with other people. And it's very challenging because this, this idea that my unhappiness is due to the outside situation is so deeply ingrained that it's really difficult to work with. 
you know. And we're always bumping up against it because we're hearing teachings on one hand and going, oh yeah, that's true. You know, ignorance, anger, attachment create karma that creates suffering. That's the root of all my, my dukkha, my unsatisfactory conditions. That's really true. But that person drives me crazy. You know, and I can't meditate because they're bugging me. And the whole community just doesn't give me enough space. And on and on and on. Okay? So this um, dissonance between what we believe and how we want to train ourselves and our real spiritual aspiration and our instantaneous reactions to situations becomes so clear. Doesn't it become clear? (laughs) Some of them are looking at me like... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think that's what, you know, makes you grow a lot is because you're constantly seeing these things. Right? And then, of course, the teachings we have are what gives us the tool to work with these kinds of situations, to work with these minds. You know, the teachings, the meditation practice, and so on, is, is all part of giving us the tools that we need to work with the raw material of what we come in with. Okay? And we come in with not only all these garbage opinions, and disturbing emotions, but we also come in with a lot of potential and a lot of inner human beauty. And, uh, and we're looking for it, and we find it, and then the structure around us in the monastery helps us to increase it and to, to see our good qualities and to tap into them and to increase them and to practice them moment by moment in our life. Okay? And so that's, that's why the environment is the way it is. The Buddha was very clear in setting the Sangha up. And by the way, when I say Sangha, I mean monastics. This way in the West of using the word Sangha to mean anybody who comes to a Buddhist center, that's not the traditional usage of the word Sangha. So when I use the word Sangha, I'm either talking about the Sangha jewel, those beings who have, re- who have realized reality, or I'm talking about the monastics in the monastic community. Okay? So, um, the, you know, the whole <coughs> idea of being Sangha is to uh, structure our life so that we can, gear, we can put our energy towards what is really deep in our heart and the spiritual aspirations that we have. So everything around is structured that way. So the first thing we start with is the daily schedule. Okay? Now, I always tell people when, when they move here, there's three things you're not going to like. And I, and I became aware of these three things through discussions with Catholic sisters because they told me there's three things that, they don't, that you know, always come up. And they happen to be just the same things that come up with Buddhists, okay? So three things you don't like. You're not going to like the schedule, okay? You're not going to like the kitchen and the choice of food and the variety of food. And you're not going to like the way the meditation sessions are organized or the prayer sessions are organized, 
Okay. Now, of course, those are the main things you do in the monastery, is <laughs> you follow the schedule, you eat, and you, you know, have teachings and, and prayer sessions and meditation sessions. Okay? So, so then you start to see, well, okay, what about the schedule? So there's a daily schedule, you know, with meditation morning and evening, and it's, that's very good and very helpful because a lot of people can't get to the cushion on their own. You know, when you find if you're living in the city and you have a job or staying at your parents' house or whatever, even you're not working, it's difficult to get to the cushion. It's difficult to, to really have your time for, uh, for silence and inner reflection and meditation. When you live in a community and you have, a, as part of the schedule, you go because everybody else is going. You know, and you signed up for it because you wanted this kind of training. So it's very supportive in terms of getting us to the cushion. You know, same thing with studying and hearing teachings. You see many times in the city people can't get themselves, you know, 15 minutes away to where the, the Dharma Center is. Or sometimes even across the street to where the Dharma Center is. You know, you just don't make it there for teachings. Or you can't even turn on the internet to, to uh, watch the teachings online. You know, turn on the internet for amusement. Yeah, we can't. We can manage. But for Dharma teachings, we can't. Uh, so having it as part of our daily schedule, study time or teaching time, again, it makes sure that we're constantly getting an education and we're getting input that is enhancing what we uh, really firmly believe and that is supporting us in our practice. And then we also have time to put all of that into practices, which is our offering service time. Now, some people call that work, um, but I don't like to call it work because work is something you have to do that you don't like to do that you want to do as quickly as you can so you can do something else. And we don't want to live our lives like that in a monastery. We don't want to live our lives with, i got to do this, i got to do that, and i got to do them as fast as possible so I can do what I really want to do, even though I'm not quite sure what it is I really want to do. <laughs> but I just want to get this done and cross it off my list. Because okay? living like that is no fun. But that's the attitude we have when we see what we're doing as work. When we see what we're doing as offering service, we have a completely different attitude. Because our mind is thinking, okay, I'm, I have certain skills, I'm using those skills, because I have the ability to create things and do things that are beneficial to others. And part of my inner spiritual motivation is to do things that are beneficial to others, to create, you know, benefit in this world, to create happiness. And so I am offering service to sentient beings, and that's my external practice of putting my spiritual values, you know, into effect in my daily life. And so when you have that kind of attitude, then even you may be doing what on the outside people call hard work. Yeah? Then from from your side, you see it as part of what you're doing for spiritual fulfillment because I get to benefit sentient beings. And so, like I said, we all have 
different talents and different abilities. And so, in the monastery, you work in different areas according to your talents and abilities. Sometimes you're assigned to work in an area where you don't have any talents and abilities. And this is also very good for our practice because then we have to counteract that poor quality self-image that says, but, 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 I can't do this, you know, because we're put in that position, we offer service to the community, so we have to figure out how to do this job and learn some new skills, and that increases our own self-confidence, as well as increases our, our abilities, our practical skills. And I would say, has everybody here had to learn some new kind of skills? Yeah? Um, So, you know, you have this opportunity to learn, but you don't, again, see it as, as I have to. You see it as I get to because I'm offering service. Okay? So that's why we have those different times in our monastic schedule for meditation, for study and teachings, for offering service. And then, of course, you know, for rest. We rest the body physically by sleeping. And we have some private time. But the purpose of the monastery is not to have so much private time that we get lost in our distractions. Because very often we don't know how to use our private time very wisely. Yeah? You see very often that it's just like, well, what do I do? You know? And, uh, and we, so we fritter away of time here, piddle it away there. Um, when you don't have so much of it, then it really wakes you up about, okay, how do I really take care of myself? What does that really mean to have space for myself and to take care of myself and to take private time? You know? And it makes you really be much more selective about what nourishes you and what we used to do that just kind of wastes a lot of time and doesn't really help us. Okay? But when I tell people that they're not going to like the schedule, it's usually because we want, you know, there's uh, an hour and a half of meditation in the morning, but we want an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half is too long for us. But for somebody else, they want an hour and 45 minutes because they have extra practices to do. And where in the world are they going to, one of the world are they going to do them? You know, so one person wants less, one person wants more. One person thinks waking up at 5 o'clock is just too early. You know, they want to wake up at 8, maybe 9. Um, somebody else says waking up at 5 o'clock is too late. I'm a morning person. I do much better. I want to get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock. Okay. So you don't like how long things last, and you don't like when in the day they occur. Okay. There's not enough time to sleep. I want more sleep. I want more time for this. I want this. I want it to... I breakfast is... It's too early. Breakfast is too late. Okay? I'm eating lunch. The silent time in lunch is too long. Why are we taking so long to eat? I want to eat and go back to what I'm doing. Why do I have to sit here with all these people who chew so slowly? <laughs> you know? And so we see, you know, just, just so many things. 
that, that we would all just rearrange everything. But of course, you know, um, if we rearrange it and make a new schedule, after, I would say three, four days, we wouldn't like that schedule either and we wouldn't want to change it again. So that's why I tell people this is a practice of learning to be content with what the situation is. Because we're never going to find the perfect schedule, let alone the perfect schedule that's going to suit everybody. But especially even for ourselves, if I were queen for the day, you know, and, and could make the schedule whatever I want it to be, I'm not going to be able to come up with one schedule that's always going to make me happy. Because I'm very moody and I change moods every day. And one day I want to wake up at 5 and one day I want to wake up at 8. Okay? So, schedule, we're not going to lie. Yeah, the kitchen, the food. You know, oh, we have too much of this food. We don't have enough of that food. I don't like this food. I can't eat that food. Well, it's not actually that I can't eat it, but I don't like it. Um, (laughs) You know, this food makes me sick. Well, actually, it doesn't make me sick. I really don't like it. And, you know, this has too much oil. I want things baked. And there's not, you know, but there's not enough sugar. And there's too much salt. or There's not enough salt. Or, you know, I want more vegetables, I want less fruit, I want this, I don't want that. Right? I don't like the time the meals are. I want a registered snack time in the middle of the day because I work so hard and I get tired. and There's no time for me to take a snack. And when I take a snack, I want a half an hour to sit down with a cup of tea and my favorite snacks and hang out at the table and chat. Well, not only a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. <laughs> um, okay, so there's always going to be something that we don't like about the food and the kitchen. And then the prayers, the, the meditation sessions. I don't like this kind of meditation. I want to do another kind of meditation. Why is there so much talking in meditation? I want silent meditation. I don't know how to do this meditation. I wish they would talk more and give me more guidance on what to do. Yeah. They do the 35 Buddhas. They do it so fast. God, I wish they did it faster. This thing is like a death. You know, a death, a funeral dirge. Uh, you know. Why don't we do the same practice every day? Why don't we alternate different practices different days? No, I want to do the same practice every day because that's how I do it to go in more depth. Why do I have to sit on this cushion? I want another kind of cushion. I don't like this place in the meditation hall. I want to sit in another place. After after all, Carlos Castaneda said we have to find our space in the room. This is not my space. I want to sit somewhere else. And and if I have to, well, okay, I have a little table. I'm going to create my own little empire. I have to have my blanket. It has to be the right color. It has to be the right size. It has to be the right texture. And this is my blanket. I don't want to use another blanket. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I want my prayer books and my little pictures and my special mala 
and my little thing, and of course my water bottle, and my bag of tissues, and uh, my journaling. I know I'm not supposed to journal during meditation time, but maybe I can write quietly and they won't hear me. Scratch, scratch, scratch. (laughs) (laughs) Why did they tell me I can't journal during meditation? Journaling is my kind of meditation. You know? Okay? So... All this visualization stuff. Why are you telling me to visualize things? I sit down. I can see pizza. I can't see the Buddha. I don't like this visualization meditation. Why are they telling me to watch my breath? It's so boring. I don't want to watch my breath. And so on and on. You know, we don't like it. Right? Okay? So, um, yeah. So I just tell people, you're not going to like those three things and get used to it. <laughs> because whatever we change it to, you're not going to like that either. Yeah. So, uh, so this is really dealing with our mind of attachment. That you know we are individualistic, free people who want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, and we don't want anybody to tell us to do something we don't want to do. We don't want to do anything when we don't feel like doing. It. So this we're right up against that mind, aren't we? Right up against it. Yeah. But you see, that's why, that's the difference between a monastery and a group of people wearing robes who live together. Because you can easily have a group of people wearing robes who live together, but they all do their own thing. And I've lived in this situation. So they all cook their own food. Yeah, you're in the kitchen. Everybody's trying to cook their own food at the same time because they won't eat the same food as anybody else. Okay? It's true, isn't it? Yeah? Then everybody wakes up at a different time. Some person's up at 5, some person's up at 6, some at 7, some at 8. People go to bed at all different times. Uh, people go out and do whatever they want. You do whatever you want, and you're just sharing the house together. Okay? And so it's possible to have a group of people who wear the same clothes, kind of, but share the house together. But that's very different than having a monastic community. Very, very different. So the schedule, the, all these things, this creates a framework within which we can grow within which we can see all of our attachment and our preferences that are based on attachment and see all of our self-centeredness. It creates an environment in which we can see all of our anger and aversion. And it creates the environment in which we need to learn to accept ourselves and to accept the fact that everybody else sees how sees us in all different kinds of moods. Okay, so this is what I call transparency, because we like to create a certain image of ourselves, don't we? Yeah. So we very neatly craft a certain image. Yeah. And and we choose to be with different people. And when we're in the mood to convey that image to them. But the thing is, when you live with 
people 24-7, you can't maintain that image all the time because there's cracks in it. Yeah. And, um, and we get in bad moods. And then other people see us in bad moods. And so this whole image of me who is always pleasant and cheerful and patient and wonderful, uh, I can't sell it anymore because they see me in bad moods. Yeah? And I see me in bad moods. And I don't, I don't like to see me in bad moods. And I don't like them to know that I have bad moods. I just want everything to change magically so I'm not in a bad mood. Right? right? We don't want anybody to see our bad moods. We don't even want to look at them ourselves. Yeah. We just want them to magically go away. Um, uh, but the thing is, living in community, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, Because you're living with people all the time. And, you know, we are all imperfect, sentient beings. So we see each other's stuff. Yeah, And we have to learn to accept the fact that other people see our stuff. And so this is very humbling. It's very humbling. It's like everybody here sees my faults and I've got to be completely okay with that which means I have to accept myself because if I don't accept myself as a person who has faults then I'm not going to accept the fact that other people see my faults and so developing self-acceptance is something really important for our dharma practice yeah. It's really important just for to be psychologically healthy in any situation. So we have to accept ourselves as the way we are and at the same time know that we can change and transform in the future. Okay? So we accept the present, know we can change and transform in the future. Yeah. But we, we have to be willing to be transparent in this way because if we try and hide ourselves from the rest of the community, it's not going to work because we're, everybody sees it, you know? And somebody says, gee, you have a nose on your face. Like, gee, you're in a bad mood today. I was, I'm not in a bad mood. What are you talking about? You know, just leave me alone. Mind your own business. I'm not in a bad mood. You're projecting. <laughs> Okay, so we have to learn to, you know, if somebody notices we're in a bad mood, you're right. You're right, I'm in a bad mood. And I need some support. We have to ask for help. Who likes to ask for help? We don't like to ask for help. Yeah, so we have to ask for help. I'm in a bad mood. Can you help me? Yeah. Can you be patient with me? I'm working on this. I know it's uncomfortable for you to be around me when I'm like this. 
but can you be patient with me? Can you support me while I'm working on my own mind to, to work through this? Okay. So it's a different way of relating to people that we're not used to at all. Because usually, you know, we're in a bad mood, we have some problems, we get out of there. Because we want to maintain our image. Or we blow up and explode and tell everybody that our bad mood is their fault. Okay? So it really involves a different way of living with people. You know, of really being transparent and being able to accept things. And we can't walk around it, you know. If somebody says, gee, you seem angry, we can't go, no, I'm not. Because it's like somebody saying, you have a nose on your face, and us going, I don't have a nose on my face. Mind your own business, look at your own nose, I don't have one. (laughs) You know? It's like there, everybody sees it, why are we ashamed of it? So we have to learn to overcome a lot of shame that we have of different things, and just accept what we are. You know, it's nothing to be ashamed of. We have the methods, we have the tools, we're all working on it. So we have to trust ourselves in that regard and trust that everybody we're living with, you know, is also working on themselves and trust that they are kind people who will understand. So even though sometimes they drive us crazy, we still have to trust that at the bottom they are kind people who support us. And so that that is a big thing because most of us have issues with trust. And to trust the, that the other people in the community really don't have it out to get us. You know, and that they're really working on themselves. And that they're not going to lend ask me for seeing my faults. And that they're going to support me. Maybe not the way I want to be supported, but the, according to the way they can support. You know, we have to accept that. So it's a very, very different way of living with other people. You getting what I'm saying? Yeah. But do you see how all of this makes you grow? Yeah, because you're in a situation where you can't hide anymore. So there's much, much more to say on that, but I want to get to some practical things too. You know, that's enough on the, the heavy stuff. Um, the practical things. Um, we wear certain kind of clothes in a monastic environment. Yeah. And so we, you know, whereas Western society, we tend to be as exposed as possible. Here, you know, we don't have low-cut things. We ask people who have low-cut things, please, you know, wear something that's higher. Yeah. Uh, we don't wear tight clothing. Yeah. Because it accentuates the body too much. And also, it's very uncomfortable for meditation. Um, You know, we don't wear uh, things with patterns and flashy colors and things like that because it attracts attention to us. It makes people look at our body and distracts them instead of helping them to really focus on their own practice. Okay, so we try and dress modestly. Yeah. We keep our legs covered in the meditation hall. We don't wear shorts. We don't wear Bermudas. Or, or what, are, what do you call them? Bermudas? Bermuda shorts. Bermuda shorts, yeah. We don't have. We, wear, we keep our legs covered, not only in the meditation hall, but everywhere in the monastery. 
it's a little bit warmer, true, in the summer. Yeah, but I always tell people, if you wear Bermudas, then maybe I should wear Bermuda robes. That wouldn't look so well, would it? Okay. So we try and be um, modest uh, with our clothing. And that's also one reason why we don't wear jewelry. Yeah, because jewelry attracts attention to us. You know, and actually jewelry is indicative. I think flashy, you know, beautiful clothing and jewelry adornments is indicative of thinking that our body is not good enough. Yeah. Why do, why do we wear jewelry and adornments and perfumes and aftershave? Because our body isn't good enough the way it is. We don't accept our body for what it is. So we need to decorate it. We need to make it smell better. We need to look at, wear some kind of clothes so that other people will look at us. Okay? We need to wear jewelry so that other people will look. And so here, we, we don't do that because we're not trying to get other people to notice how we look physically because our purpose in being here is to work on ourselves. Yeah. So jewelry actually includes watches. We don't wear watches at the Abbey. I know some of you have watches on. It'll be an interesting thing for you to, to learn to know when to be at different places, but without wearing a watch. Okay. So all these kinds of things are done for particular reasons, so that we don't draw attention to ourselves, so that we aren't trying to display what we are. That's also why one of the reasons why we don't dance, why we don't listen to music, or you know, sing music, uh, you know, regular kind of music, because it draws attention to ourselves. You know, very easy. Oh, look at me dance! I'm such a good dancer. Just look at me sing! I'm such a good singer. Look at me play this instrument. You know, and so it it, it can very easily uh, increase our our um, self attachment, and also um, it's very distracting. Yeah. If you, if you dance and sing when you sit down to meditate afterwards, boy, it's going through your mind. Now, what was that dance step like? Oh, what was that melody? And then you're trying to meditate, and that melody is going through your mind again and again and again. Okay? So that's why, you know, there's no listening to music here. We don't plug in, uh, you know, and walk around with, with our uh, iPods listening to even classical music, let alone rock music. Okay? And actually... You can see, again, this is a big difference between at the monastery and at the, you know, and the outside world. If you walk around in a city, everybody's plugged in. Yeah? Everybody has their iPod, their recorder, you know, they're jogging with their listening to music. Everybody is multitasking, even when they're relaxing. You can't just jog. You have to jog and listen to music. You, you can't just watch TV. You have to surf the channels to get everything. Or watch TV and look at the computer at the same time. Okay? So we're, we're trying to create a lifestyle where we're trying to focus our mind and develop concentration. And we can't do that when our mind is distracted by doing many different kinds of things. So even when we listen to Dharma teachings, you know, with a, 
earphones or something like that. We don't do that while we're washing dishes, while we're vacuuming. When we listen to teachings, we're sitting and giving our full attention to the Dharma teachings that we're listening to. Because if you're working and listening to teachings, half your mind is on the work you're doing and half is on the teachings. And you're not going to get the full import of the teachings. It's better, you know, when you're working to be thinking about the teachings or to say mantra. Okay? But listening to teachings really, you know, our body position, you know, and our intention should be of a certain kind so that we're, we're really earnestly listening to the teachings when, when they're there, not, not being distracted by doing something else. You could mind a bus and listen to teachings, because, again, you're not doing something else. You're sitting there and you can really focus. Okay? Um, we're also very aware at a monastery of our body language, how we sit, how we walk. Okay? Um, we're very used to, in, in regular life, sitting with our legs crossed at the knees. In the monastery, we don't cross our legs at the knees. And you begin to realize, oh, I'm really sit- used to sitting with my legs crossed. Yeah? And, well, we don't do that here. Because there's a lot of ways to express attraction, energy. And how we sit, how we walk, how we move, our body language is, is one of them. Okay. Um, we don't stand with our hands on our hips at the monastery. Yeah. That also expresses something, doesn't it? Standing like this. Yeah. We don't stand kind of on one foot, you know, with our hip out. Yeah. Often how you see people standing. If we're standing, we stand straight. Our hands are held here, our hands are down. Yeah, we don't stand and talk to people like this, because that gives us certain energy. Yeah, when we greet people, we don't yell and scream and rush up to them and throw our arms around them. Okay, when we walk, we try and and be aware of how we're walking. We don't move our body in a way to attract attention to how we're moving. We try and just walk. We try and keep our mind where our body is instead of some people when they walk you can see their mind is where they're, where they're going to but we try and keep our mind where our body is and walk where we're walking okay so there's all these kinds of things that we're not used to being aware of and mindful of and so it's a process of training I'm telling you many of those things now and we will remind you as the days go on when you forget and we remind each other because we forget because it's very different than how most of us are used to walking and used to moving used to carrying our body used to dressing okay and so but it's all designed to, to help us learn to be more present, to slow things down so that we have space in our mind and heart to cultivate compassion, to cultivate wisdom, you know, to reduce our attachment. Because we often, ex- you know, express our attachment through our physical movements. Yeah. So, so we really work, you know, a lot on that. Um, we don't sit with the, uh, you know, sit on a chair and just stretch our legs out and put our legs up on another chair. 
Okay. In your room, you can do that. In a public place, we don't do that in a public space. Yeah. It's just, what, kind, what does it convey to somebody when you're sitting there slumped in a chair with your legs out? What's your body language expressing? Mid-stating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're not meditating. No. Yeah. But it's expressing a certain inner attitude, isn't it? Yeah. If somebody who you respect, if you were with your boss at work, would you sit that way in front of your boss? Slumped in a chair with your legs sticking out on top of another chair? Would you sit that way in front of your boss? Okay. So we're trying to cultivate respectful ways of sitting. Not just whether somebody's our boss or not, but just to all sentient beings, all people who, who we encounter during the day, to sit in a respectful way in their presence. In our room, we can do something different. You know, our roommates understand it's the end of the day, whatever. Okay? But in a public place, we try and, and sit in, in respectful positions that give people and other people a good feeling. Yeah? Um, with our voice, we try not to speak too loudly. We don't call to somebody else who's in another room. Yeah, I remember when, when I first moved in here, somebody came to help over one weekend. Oh, it was so difficult because she always was talking to me from another room. And I couldn't hear properly. I had to stop what I'm doing, going in that room to talk to her. You know, we don't do that. If we need to talk to somebody, we, need, we go to where they are. We don't scream across the house, you know, or across the yard unless it's something urgent that we need to get somebody's attention quickly. Okay? So we, we try and be, you know, kind of quiet and, again, respectful. And, you know, to realize that, you know, if we're talking loud, it affects other people. It creates a certain energy. Um, we become, again, with the moving thing. You know, how we open and close a door. Do we just open the door and let it slam behind us? Do we slam the door deliberately? Yeah. Do we, uh, what do we do with our shoes when we take them off? Do we just leave them any old place so that other people trip over them? Yeah. Or do we line them up nicely so that, so that they look nice and so that we can find our own shoes afterwards? And when we're looking for our own shoes, do we take care and not scatter other people's shoes around? So all of these kinds of things that are just, you know, daily life stuff, all of a sudden we're, we're looking at them more closely. And so, uh, and we're doing this because often we're expressing a lot of meaning and purpose behind these things that we're not even aware of. You know? And when we start becoming conscious of the behaviors, then we start becoming aware of the mind states that lie behind them. Okay. So there's lots more to say, but I want to leave a little bit of time if you have some questions or comments. 
Okay. And I, and I got to say, ah, don't be afraid of making a mistake. You hear this kind of talk and say, I can't move. What she said there was more to do. I don't know what all those other things are. I'm going to make a mess. Don't worry about it. We're all here training together. You have something? Oh, I was thinking when you were saying what we have at the Abbey in terms of a conducive environment, but we also have an Abbess. And I think that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think that if we didn't have people guiding us, everything would look completely different. Mm-hmm. I just think it's part of what makes it work. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, I mean, how is it that when you, you know, like say, when you're talking about if somebody's angry and you said, oh, don't look at me, like, how do you guys? Um, actually, you know, say, okay, you're having a bad day, and, like, how do you actually, I guess, comfort each other, or, or deal with that, or have that person kind of, like, oh, okay. you know, they know they're having a bad day, but when someone else points it out, like, how's the interaction, I guess? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how's the interaction, like, when somebody has a bad day? I think it differs according to who it is in the community who's having a bad day. Because some people, like, they want you just to totally leave them alone and pretend you don't see that they're having a bad day. Other people want you to come and say, well, it looks like you're having a hard time. Do you want to talk about it? So it's, it's kind of different according to the person. But I'd like to hear from some community members what happens when you're having a bad day or you see somebody else have a bad day. Well, I can share uh, a few days ago, I went through like yeah, three, four days of mm, a lot of confusion, anger, and uh, I was, um, I did ask for help. I went to somebody and I was totally confused and I had a story, you know, my story. <laughs> They're doing that. and. But also, I wanted to be honest with all of that and see where my confusion was. And I had feedback from people. Um, I was going to say something else. But, um, you said you asked for help. Yeah, I did. And I received the help. And, and also, um, you know, to sit with it myself and 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 deeply what's going on and reflect on you know at a certain time like I had days of really feeling happy and at that time like it was totally gone. There was no happiness at all. And I said, how do I get back to that happiness? I couldn't it was just totally done. And I just kept going and, and prayed for you know, practice and, and <laughs> think of Buddha and whatever I can <clears throat> of what I've known so far. And, uh, and then poof, something happened and yeah, it's fluctuating, you know. <laughs> 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 
And then it gets shorter and shorter. Yeah, it was really, honestly, I, it was tough, but I learned a lot from it. And I, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Uh-huh. One thing we don't do is when we're getting help from someone, or you know, when we are at, a, at least for me, I'm at a place I'm going to talk with someone, or with everyone in this community. We don't. We do it not in a way of like we're going to fault find, especially the other person, because the mind is always wanting to blame. We always do it from a motivation of kind of talking from our own experience and trying to work with our own mind, and I think that creates a lot of. Uh, trust amongst us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say from my own experience living here, what I find is that it looks like what you said, you know, we all have our different reactions and this and that, but we have learned to trust each other in that what we're trying to do and that's I think quite huge because it helps us to get through uh, you know, the bumps just bumps but we know that we're going in the same direction together and, and I find that I I'm finding it a good motivator because I realize I care for people here and I don't really want to continue with my behaviors, even my thought patterns, because I really do care for people here, even if they drive me crazy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I drive myself crazy, so what's new about that? <laughs> 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 so caring for ourselves and caring for others is yeah. really a good basis. That's it. Knowing that we're all going to have every single emotion. Come on. I know. Most of my community is that when some kid gets angry, she just kind of, um, she goes quiet and she can fill a room with all sorts of tension and heat and fire and brimstone and stuff without saying a word. And, and for the first, I think, five and a half years, I've been here six years, five and a half years, I, my ang- the way that it came out is that most people weren't quite sure exactly how to support me. I didn't give anybody any kind of assurance that they weren't going to get blasted when they came out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like a little landmine sitting on the ground and I wasn't even sure. So for the first five and a half years, my behavior, some of the time, provoked a lot of suffering of other people, but they weren't able to come to me and tell me because they weren't sure of what the response was going to be. You know, I have a steaming, stewing, fiery, cut like a knife kind of anger inside that doesn't come out in words. So when I finally got in touch with it, because my anger wasn't one of those lashing, volatile spewing, it was more like stuffing, 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 and having meltdowns and wanting to run away kind of anger, is that when I finally got in touch with my own manifestation of anger and came to realize how much it had affected the community, there was uh, an incredible sense of um, regret and uh, an incredible sense of wanting to make amends and to apologize. So somewhere along the line when I was able to identify how anger manifests in my own mind and how it plays itself out and separates me so much from the community that they can't even they can't even help me. They, there's no place for them to help me because 
it's not that they're a, it's not, I never got a sense, I never got a sense that people were afraid of me. They were really trying to give me space to figure it out myself because I wouldn't let them in to help me. And then finally through the teachings and Venerable, in her skillful, patient way, finally got me to at least look inside and see how it manifested. And then when I finally gave people an opening, and in their skillful, kind way on how the anger manifests in relationship to each of them. It was a great healing because now I can hear a little bit more feedback and it also made me realize that how much how much harm it caused that I wasn't even aware of. And that I've always had this kind of outsider experience here that when I get angry I really feel that it's me against the world and it's all I am doing and I had no understanding of that so finally realizing the disadvantages of anger looking at those meditations on what does anger do for me and then to see how much I needed help was a great turn but it hasn't happened up until recently so you know, anger can really make pe- people not want to be be with you or even know how to be with you and help. And so that's part of how the anger manifests for me is in this way that makes people not be able to help me. And so that's slowly turning because I'm starting to trust and starting to identify my own ways in which anger manifests in my mind and how it plays itself out in relationship. But the people that I care about the most, you know, hasn't been easy for the community. I thought it was only me that was suffering, but I realized that the community's also been suffering quite a bit the past year.